One of the challenges to sharing space with each other as a community is that our culture across the world has placed so much weight on being right. I wonder if actually much of our social conflict revolves around essentially that question, who is right and who is not? And like, is some of the ugliness of our moment from the extent to which we're willing to express how, how right we actually are? It's as if our basic premise is that right thinking outweighs right action. So as long as I think I'm right, it doesn't really matter what I do. Which kind of makes me want to ask this question. Can we be right, but in the wrong way? Can we, can we look right, but be wrong? Jesus, at very least, seemed to think so. But before we get to that, I want to go to the book of the Bible called Numbers in chapter 20. Now, I know you were already in Numbers in your devotions this morning, so it's going to be super easy for you to find. But Numbers is the fourth book in the Old Testament, and it is part of the Pentateuch, these, these five books of the Old Testament that chart the story from the beginnings through the story of Israel into slavery and then onward into God's promised land. Now, we call the book Numbers, and we get that name from the Greek title for the book, which is Arithmoi, and you might hear the language of math and arithmetic in that. But in Hebrew, the book is known by a much more attractive title of Bamidbar, which literally means in the desert. Now, that title, that this book is called In the Desert, will probably make sense of how the story in Numbers 20 that we're engaging with today, how it begins. Think about it. The book's called In the Desert, and chapter 20 and verse 2 begins like this. Now there was no water for the community. You see the connection there, right? And the people gathered, all the people of Israel who are on their, this Exodus journey, they gathered in opposition to Moses, the leader, and Aaron, his brother. They quarreled with Moses and said, if, if only we had died when our brothers fell dead before the Lord. Why did you bring the Lord's community into this wilderness that we and our livestock should die here? Why did you bring us up out of Egypt to this terrible place? It has no grain or figs, grapevines or pomegranates, and there is no water to drink. Moses and Aaron, they went from this assembly to the entrance of the tent of meeting and fell face down, and the glory of the Lord appeared to them. The Lord said to Moses, take the staff and you and your brother Aaron gather the assembly together. Speak to that rock before their eyes, and it will pour out water. You will bring water out of the rock for the community so that they and their livestock can drink. So Moses took the staff from the Lord's presence, just as he commanded him. He and Aaron gathered the assembly together in front of the rock, and Moses said to them, Listen, you rebels, must we bring you water out of this rock? And then Moses raised his arm and struck the rock twice with his staff. Water gushed out, and the community and their livestock drank. This story is known as May Meribah in Hebrew tradition, literally means the waters of strife. Now, if you've been tracking through the story of the people of Israel, this story would sound familiar because it's an echo of an earlier story in Exodus chapter 17, when Moses is in a very similar situation, the people don't have anything to drink, and God tells him to strike the rock 
and it allows the people to drink. Now, as one Jewish commentator notes, at first glance, the story we've just read in Numbers chapter 20 all seems pretty standard. There's no water, the people complain, Moses prays, God performs a miracle. It kind of seems like a regular day for the people of Israel in the desert. But the next verse in the story is where it all takes a turn. In Numbers chapter 20 and verse 12, it says this, But the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, Because you did not trust me enough to honor me as holy in the sight of the Israelites, you will not bring this community into the land I give them. So wait a minute. Moses ends up losing his leading role in Israel's exodus because he was disobedient? Well, how was he disobedient? Well, God told him to speak to the rock, and instead Moses struck the rock. Instead of speaking to it, he hits it like he'd done in Exodus chapter 17. But God asked him for something else. So Moses was disobedient, and therefore he doesn't progress in the story. And that might make sense to us. Right obedience to God is an important feature in the biblical story. Doing what God asks seems to be a common theme. So this all seems normal, except that the miracle still happened. Water poured from the rock. Now, from the perspective of the people who are present, so they didn't hear any of the conversation between Moses and Aaron and Moses and Aaron and God. So from their perspective, Moses was a successful miracle worker and they weren't thirsty anymore. (laughs) Moses solved things. But let's just pause for a moment on that. The evidence, the data, the results, they show Moses as a successful supernatural leader. Truth, however, was that what the people saw as success was actually a marker of Moses being completely off track with God. Is it possible to look like you're doing the right thing, but actually be doing the wrong thing? Is it possible to hold a right position on something, but to do it in a completely wrong way? Can, can you be right? and yet be wrong all at the same time? (laughs) Now, not only do I think the answer is yes to that question, but within that question are the roots of why the church, I think, has so often ceased to be a safe place for people to have differing opinions and yet still share life together, take communion together. I have Christians prioritize having the right thoughts and beliefs over having the right actions and behaviors. Like is being a Christian about what we think or is it about what we do? And that might be a false dichotomy. It might not actually be possible to split them so cleanly. But have we become more concerned with thinking right and being right than perhaps being righteous, being good, doing what God has asked of us? Now, towards the end of his Sermon on the Mount, Jesus turns to this exact issue that we saw in Numbers chapter 20. And in Matthew chapter 7 and verse 21, he says this. Jesus says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? And in your name drive out demons? And in your name perform many miracles? And then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. 
Like, that's a pretty harsh sounding text, and it could cause a lot of anxiety if you're not careful. But look at what Jesus is saying. He seems to be saying that we could perceive something or someone, and they might appear to be saying all the right things, and sometimes appear to be even doing the right things, yet not actually be living in the way of Jesus. Sky Jatani says it brilliantly like this. He says, being used by God and belonging to God are not the same thing. We see this throughout scripture, that people are used by God and, and appear amazing things happen around them, but they're not actually working with God at that point. So doing things for God and being godly are not the same thing. So it's almost as if what Jesus is saying is there's a problem with how we calculate. There's a problem with how we make sense of things. Size and success are not markers of obedience and righteousness. Moses was successful while being disobedient. I think this is difficult for us to compute. The the 19th century Russian Sergei Nechayev argued that if a goal is morally important enough, any method of getting it is acceptable. This is what we call the ends justify the means. And philosophers call this consequentialism. And you may have heard it described as Machiavellian, right? It's, it's what we got that matters, not how we got here. So Moses is successful because water came forward. He got what he wanted. The problem is, it just isn't the way of Jesus. And not only is it not the way of Jesus, it's a mode of life that has proved cancerous to our societies and communities because we end up trying to live in this way where basically we say it's my way or the highway. Peter Enns points out that when Christians and churches start to think like this, it, he says it like this, it not only drives people out, but it also sends up a red flare to the rest of humanity that Christianity is just another exclusive members only club and that Jesus is a lingering relic of antiquity rather than a powerful present defining spiritual reality, a means of gaining power rather than relinquishing it. And, and who needs that really? So the question to me seems to be, how do we share space as Jesus followers when we live in contexts where proving that you are right is more important than being, than being righteous, when good results overwhelm good behavior. And what I wanna suggest is that what we need is congruence. Congruence means harmony. We're, we're looking for a level of harmony, a level of harmony between what Jesus calls us to and how we actually are in community together. Like if we have congruence, we will be more trusted because we're more authentic. Think about it like this. If your beliefs are, are lining up with your actions, if your values are seen in the way that you live, then people trust you. People, people think you're authentic. People will listen to what you have to say about things. So I want us to pause and think about that. And here's three things that I think we need to keep learning to have congruence in our life. And if we can get that, that matching up, that harmony between what we say and what we do, between what we claim to think and how we behave, if we can get that, then we're gonna be better at being in each other's space. If we can be humble enough and perhaps even courageous enough to work on these things, 
I think we'll be better as a community. So the first thing I want to talk about is this. We need to learn how to apologize. <laughs> like this sounds basic, right? <laughs> this is, but, but this to me is important. Our love of being right has made us terrible at being wrong. We're just not good at it. And you might say, well, why would I ever want to be good at being wrong? But think about it like this. What I'm trying to say is that when we are wrong or worse, when someone else points out that we're wrong, we're just not good at processing it. We, 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 we almost start to go into some sort of breakdown at the possibility that we might be wrong. And so what happens when we hear somebody tell us that we're wrong, we hear personal attack. We feel like we're being slighted as a human. And so what happens is we then become defensive. In her book, Why Won't You Apologize? Harriet Lerner notes, notes it like this. She says, humans are wired for defensiveness. It's kind of easy to apologize for small matters like spilling red wine on a friend's carpet. But when someone is confronting us with how we've inflicted a larger injury, we immediately go into defensive mode. And I want you to take note of how this defensive thing happens. Because when, when you are accused of being wrong, or when it's come to your attention that you're being wrong, if you go into a defensive mode and start defending yourself, what happens is you change how you listen, how we listen adjusts. When we're not defensive, we listen to hear what's being said. When we are defensive, we now listen to learn how we're going to defend ourselves. We don't listen to hear anymore. So if someone comes, they point out that we're wrong and we listen closely and we focus on what they're saying. But what are we specifically focusing on? We're trying to listen for inaccuracies in what they're saying or for exaggerations in what they're saying. Because if you can come to me and say, I think you're wrong and here's why. And if I can then say, oh, that's not exactly right. Or I think you're making it bigger than it is. What I then feel justified in doing is sort of ignoring everything that you've said. I'll throw out your whole complaint just because I feel like you were a little inaccurate. Essentially, we're trying to win a debate. We've turned this moment where somebody has come to us to point out our wrong into a chance for us to win. See, because it seems like for many of us, being corrected or having it pointed out that we're in the wrong, it raises up this particular emotion for us, this emotion called shame. Like it's embarrassing. And we don't like feeling embarrassed. We want to avoid feeling embarrassed. So when somebody comes to us and says, there's something wrong, you've done something that's not right, because we feel shame at that, our tendency is then to deny that we've done anything wrong. Have you ever noticed that, that tendency? Somebody says you're wrong and what you do is instead of apologizing, you, you offer back your defense of why you're not wrong, of why what you've done is acceptable and right. And this actually leads us down a pathway of denial and self-deception rather than facing up to reality. Like our, our inability to apologize, like what if it comes just from our low self-esteem? And therefore, when we feel that's threatened, we fight and we get on in the defensive. In Proverbs chapter 15, the writer of great wisdom talks about learning gentle answers and turning away anger. Can we dial down our defensiveness and shame and listen with an open heart? 
Because I think if we're going to move away from constantly fighting to ensure that we're right in every situation, regardless of what pain that causes to people, if we're going to move away from that, we probably need to learn how to apologize. And the beginning of good apology sometimes involves just listening better. The second thing that I want to talk about is our integrity, which is sort of linked to the connection with apologizing. Apologizing and integrity kind of come together. The writer Stephen Covey, he tells a story of a friend who hurt him deeply. But the friend realized what he'd done and came and gave a heartfelt apology. And Stephen wanted to learn from this, so he asked his friend, like, why, why did you apologize for this? And the friend said he realized he had two options, and I love this and I wanted to share it with you because I think it's brilliant. The friend said, I have two options. I can either listen to my ego and give a lukewarm apology, or I can listen to my conscience and give a meaningful one. Like, who are you listening to? And I think this is what we call integrity, when our values and beliefs win over our desire to act differently, when our conscience beats our ego, when what's right beats our sense of shame. I like, I like how it's sometimes said that integrity is, or rather you know that you've got integrity when who you are on your own is the same as who you are in public. So once again, we're talking about authenticity. Now, in the scriptures, integrity has really high value. Proverbs consistently talks about integrity. Proverbs chapter 10, verse 9, whoever walks in integrity walks securely, but he who makes his ways crooked will be found out. And Proverbs 11, verse 3, the integrity of the upright guides them, but the crookedness of the treacherous destroys them. In Proverbs 28, verse 6, better is a poor man who walks in integrity than a rich man who is crooked in his ways. Is our inability to live well with each other, is it because too often what we claim to believe isn't reflected in how we live and treat one another? Like, it's hard. It is hard to trust someone who says one thing but does the other. Like they're not the sort of people you want to build your life with. Those are not the sort of people you want to be in community with. You definitely don't want to have a barbecue with them. Jesus said, he said, let your yes mean yes and your no mean no. So we have this sense of we have to learn how to apologize. Our apologies will become rooted in an integrity of our heart where we match things up together. And thirdly and finally, and unsurprisingly, if we're going to share life together, we need grace. Our insistence on being right has proved toxic to our personal relationships. We build social circles around people like us. It's a human thing to do. We gravitate towards similarity, which means that we love more people like us than un like us. Look at your friendship circles. Look at your groups that you hang around in. How are they, how are they created? And oftentimes what I find is I hang around with a lot of people very like me. It's like I unconsciously live by this message, which is if you want to be loved by me, then you must be like me. Now think about how that works in a church setting. 
you've got to think like me, you've got to believe exactly like me, you've got to agree with everything like me. You've got to be right the way I say you should be right if we're going to be in community together. But here's the thing. Like, this is not how God loved us. Like, fortunately, this is not how grace works. Romans 5, which should constantly echo in our minds as followers of Jesus, Romans 5 reminds us that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. So when we weren't like each other, God loved us. And this is not simply theological truth. It is theological truth. Hear me well. It is theological truth. But is it also social model? Is Jesus showing us how to live as much as to how we are in right relationship with him? Can God's grace and love as it was directed towards us guide us to be better in shared space with one another? In, in, in 1518, Martin Luther wrote these words in, in what is known as his Heidelberg Disputation. Luther said this, the love of God does not find, but creates what is pleasing to it. Human love comes into being through what is pleasing to it. So God's love doesn't find, but creates what is pleasing. Human love comes into being through finding what is pleasing. So what Luther's saying here is that human love is built on attraction. There's probably no great surprise to you right there. Human love is drawn to things it already likes, things it already considers good, things that it thinks are right, things that it thinks are beautiful. We decide those things in advance and then love finds them for us. In contrast, however, Luther points out that God's love, it doesn't find things that it likes and then love them, but rather God's love finds us and chooses to love us regardless. So Luther continues like this. He says, therefore, sinners are attractive to God because they are loved. They are not loved because they are attractive. And this is the love of the cross. But God, like, God doesn't find the good to love. He gives his love to the bad and the needy, and he makes them good. Like grace. Grace calls us into community together, not to be selecting our community on the basis of who we agree with or who we like, but on the basis of God's love. Love can take us to a different place. Love can call us to actually love people we disagree with, people that think differently from you politically, people that think differently from you socially, people that have different views on the economy than you. Grace calls us to love differently. In Proverbs chapter 11 and verse 23, there's this beautiful little line that says this, the desire of the righteous ends only in good, but the hope of the wicked only in wrath. Like if you desire righteous things, good things will result in that. But if we see something ending in anger and wrath and rage and fury, it probably starting in a bad place as well. So, Here's a way of thinking about this. Whether you are Moses in the desert or a 21st century person trying to navigate post-pandemic restrictions, the question, the question still seems to be the same question. 
What are we trying to achieve? Is our desire to be right or is our desire to be righteous? Do we want things to look okay or are we actually looking to do what God has called us to? And, and so here's the thing. We all have our opinions and we all value them. And let's be honest, we think they're right. And what kind of crazy people would we be if we held opinions that we thought were wrong? <laughs> of course we think our opinions are right. And I am not wanting today to ask you to change those opinions. That's a, that's a different sermon for a different day. <laughs> what I do want to ask you is how are we going to behave to one another despite the fact that we don't agree? See, because as Moses discovered, you can appear right and not be right all at the same time. You can be right, but in the wrong way. So maybe there's somebody at church that doesn't have the same opinion as you. Maybe you don't see things the same way. And you can maybe win that argument. You can maybe beat them down to your way of thinking. But is that the right way? Whether you're right or wrong at this point becomes irrelevant if the way of getting what you want, the way of convincing people that you're right is destructive and doesn't model Jesus. So may we learn to live out the integrity of the way of Jesus. And may we learn the word sorry. And may we be shaped by grace. May we remember that we can be right, we can win, we can even get what we want, and it still not be the way of Jesus. But may we also learn that when we embrace the grace-filled way of Jesus, what opens up before us is the beauty of truly sharing life together, despite all of our disagreements and divisions. Grace and peace to you.